Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that would never call where you live shit, but might say that your MP is. I'm Jacob Jarvis. On today's show, we didn't think James Cleverly could annoy any more people last week, but then he said the Rwanda plan is not the be-all and end-all in his plan to stop the boats, much to the dismay of Tory right-wingers. How will he and Sunak hack the backlash and can Starmer secure a message on migration that counters the rage narrative? Plus, the Tories are apparently entering election mode from January. Is there ever a good time to go to the polls when you look destined to lose? Now, let's meet the panel. Ros Taylor is a bunker and Oh God, What Now mainstay, freelance editor and author of the upcoming book, The Future of Trust. Hello, Ros. Hello, Jeff. Ros, talk of the elites is a bit of a right-wing hobby horse here, CC Matthew Goodwin. But is uh, is there actually some new research which showed there is a split between people who go to university and people who don't, which kind of means there's something vaguely tangible in that debate when you remove it from the the right-wing crankery? Yeah, there absolutely is. And this research is co-authored by Rob Ford, who's a friend of the podcast, and uh, it's very good. Essentially, in the past 30 years, more and more people have got degrees, as we know, gone to university. And those people have a very different worldview, generally, from older people. They're more socially liberal, less attached to regional identities because they've moved around usually, and they're much more likely to have voted Remain. And that is one of the reasons why Labour is doing well in the polls. And it's also a reason why Labour is likely to do better as the people who are older die off, to put it frankly, and cease to vote. Um, but what it also does is open up divisions where people on a different on different sides of a debate don't talk to each other because they're not in the same social circles. And that worsens the kind of intergenerational divides too that we've been seeing with kind of resentment of different different age groups. And it, so it, it, I think it's actually very important research because it cuts through and it helps to explain a lot of the schisms in society in the last 10 years or so. And so Labour really, I mean, should they be wanting to encourage a lot more people to, to go to university then to keep themselves in power forever? Well, yes. If they get into power, not to jinx <laughs> But it. I don't think you'd hear Keir Starmer saying that because it's a very delicate balancing act, obviously, he's got because he also, you know, he wants to appeal and must appeal still to um, people without degrees and uh, in, in order to get the kind of buy-in from the whole of society that he needs. Otherwise, we're going to have this elite and non-elite discourse just perpetuating itself. I wonder if you need a degree to be a toolmaker. We'll have to we'll have to find out. Jerry Scott is a senior political correspondent at the Times. Hi, Jerry. Hello. Jerry, what is this is a very broad question, but it'll get a bit more specific. But what is going on with Lee Anderson, not generally, but in regard to his claim that he was offered money to join the Reform Party, essentially? And could he still end up switching over to that party? And surely, though, are there not rules around what looks like a bribe, basically, to switch your allegiance. Yeah, I'm glad you narrowed that down because we could do the whole podcast on what is going on with Lee Anderson, <laughs> couldn't we? Uh, but look, this is basically the story that Lee Anderson seems to have revealed at a meeting that he was offered some money to to defect, to reform. He didn't say reform directly. He just said a party beginning with R. But, I mean, I think we can all work out exactly who he's talking about. Although, could it be reclaim as well? Or, oh, I, don't know. I suppose it could be, but we're pretty sure it's reform, mm. right? Uh, Richard Tice, reform's leader, was out on the broadcast round on Sunday, basically confirming the story, saying, yes, we have been in conversations with various multiple Tory MPs, ministers, former ministers, but he denied ever offering any money. 
Um, what he did suggest, however, is that Lianzen had leveraged this position to get his job as deputy chairman of the Conservative Party. Lianzen said that that's not true in a statement released to GB News, where he, of course, also works. <laughs> um, so, look, it's a bit of a war of words. But what we do know is that Reform have been trying to tap up Tory MPs and actually they're creeping up and up in the polls. We know that election strategists in the Conservative Party are concerned about this. When it hits around that kind of 8% figure, which they've been kind of flirting around, that's when it starts to get dangerous to the Tories and there are fears that they start taking votes from the Conservatives. So that's why they're so tetchy about this, so so touchy. But you're right, there are rules about it in that it could be seen as a bribe. It's been reported to the Speaker. There have been kind of in, uh, encouragements from people to go to the police. In terms of whether he could go, I mean, he was a Labour member before he was a Conservative member. Why not make the make the hat trick, I suppose? But I'd be surprised at this stage. Before we start, a little bit of Christmas joy for you to get you in the spirit. Getting the right Christmas presents is always a nightmare. So do yourself a favour and kit the family out with quality gear from podmarket.co.uk, the Podmasters merch store. We've got fantastic mugs, t-shirts and now hoodies from Oh God What Now, plus our companion shows Papercuts, The Bunker and Origin Story. They're all 10% off for Black Friday, still, so you can watch your family's faces light up when they unwrap an Ask Me About My Luxury Beliefs t-shirt or an old-school anti-Brexit hate-to-say-we-told-you-so t-shirt complete with the classic Romaniacs logo. It's all at podmarket.co.uk, home of the true meaning of Christmas. The Tories are in another tailspin after net migration hit a record level, giving Bravman and her mates a chance to take some shots and swear they'd do it better if they were in charge, even though they didn't do it better when they were in charge. Meanwhile, James Cleverley has insisted the Rwanda plan isn't the be-all and end-all in the Stop the Boats crusade, adding fuel to the bonfire that is the Tory right. So how will Sunak handle the return of infighting within his ranks after a very small pause following the reshuffle? And on the other side, can Starmer nail down a coherent counter-message to the hardline madness? Roz, right before we recorded, Cleverly was up in the Commons and he refused to say if new Rwanda legislation will allow the European Convention of Human Rights to be ignored. Why is he so coy about this? Is it because, as usual, the Tories don't actually know what they're doing or what they even want to do? Is it kind of he's wanting to test the waters a little bit before he says anything? I think the best explanation is that he wants to give the Tories as little time as possible to fight about it and make it a fait accompli, basically. Say, right, we've got the wording, fight for it or not, you know, but not give people weeks to think about it. Because the earlier he shows his hand, the longer people have got to pick it apart and point out probably that it won't work. And that's not in his best interests. And this may not be in the best traditions of parliamentary democracy, but, you know, see recent history. Yeah. So we kind of want the plan to burn out and not fade away, essentially. He wants just a, a quick, short scrap well, rather than a drawn-out battle among don't, the don't give Don't give people time to think about it. Just, you know, put it in front of them and make them make up their minds quickly is, mm. the uh, I think, the aim. I think Sun Tzu said that in The Art of War, actually. So uh, <laughs> cleverly said at the weekend as well that people shouldn't fixate on the Rwanda plan, which I thought was quite rich given that the government has fixated on it for quite a long time. But why has that irked people who want the plan to happen quite so much when isn't it common sense that if your plan isn't going to happen, you have to look for some variety of alternative? Yeah, so small boats are very hard to stop. No one knows exactly what the best approach is to stop them. And the, uh, the supporters of the Rwanda plan think that only the deterrent of prompt deportation to Rwanda is going to have the desired effect of stopping them. 
Now, you know, plenty of people uh, argue that it won't have that effect at all. But other ways of tackling it as well mean working with the EU, which is not traditionally popular with the Conservative Party. And it's a slow job of, you know, breaking down chains of people smugglers. It's not it's not far. It do, it's, it's not something where it, Britain can be seen to be taking unilateral, bold action. And it would also be an action, probably, which tests the strength of the ECHR. And that is also something that the right wing of the party would like to do. As we know, Suella Braverman thinks that the international law on refugees currently is unfit for purpose. She would like to, to you know, throw it up in the air and start it again. So that is why Rwanda is, is still something that they are attached to and that they want desperately to make work. Is there basically a kind of Brexitification, if you can allow me to use that as a word, of the political thought there, that they all just want a short, sharp shock that will sort the thing out rather than, as you say, to wrangle with anything. And does that come from that they're not capable of it or that they know they don't have very long in government yet, so they just want something done? Or is it a mix of the two? I mean, that's those are undoubtedly uh, part, playing into the calculation. But they're attached to the scheme. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's the pet scheme of the right of the party. And like any audacious project, whether it's Brexit or whether it's HS2, people who back it want to see it through, no matter how great the obstacles are and no matter how difficult it's proving to actually implement. Jerry, so what are the tribes at the moment that we've got? Have we got defined groups kicking off or is it becoming more disparate that everyone's unhappy and it's making loads of little silos of people who are pissed off at Rishi Sunak and James Cleverly? So everyone is pissed off. You're not wrong, but like <laughs> see the last however many years, right? But um, but yes, everyone's pissed off, but in different ways. So you've got, take, for example, the new Conservative group, that group of uh, 2019ers who have set up in their in their little grouping, they're pissed off because they think things should go further, should go faster, should be, you know, Rwanda at all costs, um, like Ros was just saying. But you've then got the more traditional Tories, your kind of moderates, one-nationers, who really are very, very concerned, and I've spoken to a lot of them over the last few weeks, about what would essentially be the ripping up of Britain's international treaties because they see that as kind of sacrilege, right? They think these things are really important. And above all, it's the same kind of um, people who got really sick of Boris Johnson because it was about the like disrespect of standards and kind of, you know, propri- propriety in government and things like that. So that's kind of the two wings that we're seeing. And I think it's really difficult quite often at the moment, to see where Rishi Sunak positions himself in that. Like, we've spoken on this podcast before about how he's actually far more on the right of the party than people maybe either expected or anticipated. Maybe um, that's how he wanted it to seem. But on this issue, it's really unclear at the moment exactly where he'll go. He's been flirting between the right and the centre, and it's still not clear. It's the split almost becoming a little bit more people who believe in processes and fairness and people who don't give a shit about those things as opposed to being entirely political, if that makes sense. It's kind of there are people who just think move fast and break things and then there are people who go, no, there are things that are important, parliament is important, doing things by the book is important. There's some of that. There's also some kind of electoral kind of calculations that you can do here. The more one nation moderate Tories tend to have seats in the South the kind of more right-wing Tories tend to have seats in the North. And that's, you know, not that's not a kind of real blunt distinction, but that does tend to be how it is. And those kind of newer conservatives think that they find on the doorstep that immigration is the number one issue for them. They think that if they don't get this scheme off the ground, if they don't deal with the boats, they don't bring migration down, they will lose their seats. Whereas the more moderate conservatives kind of, you know, they think that their electorate is a bit more forgiving, maybe a bit more like, you know, 
sympathetic to the plight that refugees have been through. So there is kind of a electoral element there as well. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the people who are like, you know, screw it, let's just break everything, haven't been in Parliament for that long, maybe don't respect the processes so much. So what is it that Bravman is actually angling for at the moment? And also, so Jenrick has done a plan, hasn't he, and sent that off to number 10. But do we know what that is that he's pushing for very much without a little bit more secret? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what Bravman is um, angling for, I mean, future party leadership. Oh, yeah. is it? It's a kind of a kind of a <laughs> Who simple as that. Who wouldn't want to be leader of the Tories <laughs> uh, at the moment? It looks like a great job. Well, quite. But I mean, in terms of what she wants, she wants to make her point and say, "Look, I was right all along," um, and kind of be able to shout from outside the tent. Jenrick, I think, is a bit more interesting because you kind of expect it from Suella Bravman, right? This has been kind of her um, her mode of operation for many years. Jenrick, I think, is particularly interesting because he is almost stepping into the breach of her now not being there by saying, no, look, I have a plan as well. And it's quite a hardline plan and it involves upping the salary threshold. It involves limiting the number of dependents people can bring over. So he is trying to kind of fill that gap. And I think where Robert Jenrick has gone in the last few years is fascinating. He's taken a bit of a journey, I think, from being more of a moderate Tory to more being on the right. And I think you see that in his statements in the Commons. You see it when he does media rounds. He's quite punchy on this. So I think he sees himself as an outrider on it and he's trying to push his plan forward. Um, let's see if it works. Roz, all of this new this new argument that's going on, as if it's it's not totally new, is it really, let's be honest, but the, the latest iteration of it has been sparked by record high net migration figures. Could you pick apart those numbers a little bit for me and what do they show beyond the top line figure that these sort of people are just saying, oh, it's just bad because it's really high? Well, if we pick them apart and look at who's coming here and what they're coming here to do, um, which I don't think is is discussed enough, actually. Mm. Um, No, it's just discussed literally as it's a really big number. Yeah, it's a really big number. And that's it. And of course, net migration is um, immigration uh, minus emigration as well. So what you're actually finding is that, you know, the number of people coming into the country is is, is higher than 745,000. So the vast majority of these people now who are coming in are non-EU nationals. And if you look at the nationality, that's about a quarter of a million who are Indian. Uh, after that, it's Nigeria, 141,000 people from Nigeria. A lot of people coming from there because Nigeria is having a bit of a crisis and a lot of Nigerians are deciding to make a new start elsewhere. And then after that, it's Chinese, Pakistani and Ukrainian on 35,000. And then what are they coming here to do? Well, 39% of them are coming here to study. 33% are coming here to work. Uh, Many of those are on health and social care work visas and humanitarian visas. I think people like asylum seekers and so on are uh, 9%, which of course is is, is quite low. And it's about 1% if you look at the number who've come in on small boats. So one of the really interesting ones about the work as well is that among the non-EU people on work visas, about half of those are dependents. In other words, they're people who are coming along because we badly need these workers, uh, but they can't come unless they bring in a dependent with them or they won't come, can't, won't, you know, it's hard to tell the difference quite often. That is something that the government really, really wants to crack down on. They don't want the dependents. They just want the workers themselves. But that's hard when you're recruiting for health and social care because so many of these uh, the people working in that sector will be women and may well have children whom they don't want to abandon in a different country. Yeah, it's basically saying, can you come and make sure our NHS works, but can you also be really unhappy at the same time? Which yeah. is really, it's really a, it's, quite a walked way of thinking, ask, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. yeah, do a really hard job for not much money and leave your family behind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, fucking hell! Sometimes they really, really do do my uh, do my head in there. 
on what people actually think about this. I mean, you know, you probably hear from my voice there that I, I quite like the idea that if a nurse comes over here, they can bring their, their kids and partner if they want because I don't want someone to be working really horrible shifts and go home to no one whilst their family are hundreds or thousands of miles away. But what does the, the public generally think when it comes to polling? So it's a really nuanced picture if you look into it. And all the stats I'm going to quote come from YouGov, because I know some listeners will be thinking, where does this come from? So I've just gone to <laughs> YouGov, which has a lot of stuff on this, if you go. So the vast, the vast majority of Britons think that uh, we handle immigration badly. 83% of us say we handle it badly. That, of course, doesn't tell you whether we had uh, let in too many people or not enough. Is it one of the most important issues facing the country? Not really. That is on a downward trend long term. But it has been ticking up steadily for the past year even though Britain, of course, faces some very, very big problems, which I don't need to share with you, which were always going to be top of the pile, NHS. I won't, don't need to, as I say. And if you ask people, has there been the right amount of immigration over the past decade, 60% say that there has been too much. And that figure is back to what it was three years ago, which is quite ominous. And Drilling down again, when you ask people what the problem is, you know, potential problems are with high immigration, they say pressure on housing and public services. And that is what you would expect during a cost of living crisis. In the past, it's been things like, uh, you know, fear of terrorism and uh, that that kind of thing. But this now it's very much there are that the NHS is under strain and public uh, and, and housing is under strain. And this is not helping. So that's the overview of what the public think at the moment. I mean, with that, you know, the, the system not working. So Bravman's apparent deal with Sunak in the leadership contest is, is very much in focus. Is this another example of just the churn in politics we've got causing us issues? Because if you're having constant leadership elections, you're having constant deals be done, you're having people move out of their briefs. The brief is one issue, but if people are then making backdoor promises to get their aspirations to to come to fruition, that's going to just back up the problems even more, isn't it? So this isn't just about the Tories. This is a wider problem for us that he's made a promise to just you know achieve whatever it might be that he wanted to. Yeah, he appears to have done all that. Yeah. Goodness knows what I've actually agreed yeah. in the in the febrile atmosphere of that time, <laughs> which you'll recall was just insane. Apparently, uh, Braverman demanded that he raise the minimum salary level for migrants to come here to £40,000, and uh, he agreed. I mean, it was surprising on the face of it, looking back on it now, that Braverman was able to extract that promise from Sunak, if that's what it was. But then when you look back, as I say, at the state the party was in, and he clearly felt that he needed support from the right wing and that without it, he would struggle as prime minister to keep the party together. I'm not sure whether I agree with that. I think at the time, it almost felt as if he was the only sensible option. But it was a, it was a crazy time in politics. And certainly it does seem now that he's lost Braverman, that that era of having her on side is over and the party is indeed again tearing itself apart over yeah. migration. I think we've seen time and time again that Sunak isn't very good at politics, really. So, yeah, maybe he made the promise without thinking down the line. In but some what if ways, I don't do that but promise? But not in this so, way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, the, the critics want to look at the migration numbers bluntly and just go, you know, we think they're bad. And you spoke about Jenrick taking this 
slightly weird political journey. Could this Rao turn cleverly into essentially being a sort of Brahman 2.0? Will he be cowered into becoming a hardliner just to to stop getting so much flack? I think he's trying to resist that as much as he can. I think, um, and I would say this, wouldn't I, but in his interview with the Times at the weekend, um, you know, he really revealed that he wasn't in the same place as some in his party saying, you know, we don't have to leave the ECHL, we don't have to do all these things. So I think he's kind of trying to straddle the two, right? He's saying, no, we can do the things that we want to do, but we don't need to be so extreme about the methods by doing them. So he's trying to do the both. Whether he gets dragged to the right, I think remains to be seen. But I think there's a question of over whether he actually needs to. So, you know, we talk about this a lot in terms of the popularity of these different people. James Cleverly is right at the top of that Conhome uh, members popularity list that we use quite often to see how popular people are. So he's already up there with members. I'm not convinced that he needs to be dragged to the right to kind of, you know, shore up his own position. The other thing he'll be considering is, you know, we said it about Swella Braverman. James Cleverly is constantly being tipped as a future leader as well. And for that kind of thing, you do need to have quite a broad base. I don't think he can afford, if he wants to lead the party in the future, to alienate those moderates. So I think he'll resist it as much as he can. Ros, look, turning to Labour now. So it's, it obviously has to be a focus for them as well once it's a focus of, of the government. But why is migration still such a weird issue for the centre-left to, to discuss and always such an issue, even when it seems the Tories on every metric by everyone's measure aren't being interested to handle it well or having constructive discussions about it either? This is a really, really interesting question. <laughs> and I don't think it's, it's properly discussed either. I think it's because the centre-left largely likes immigration and the better off um, generally benefit from it. Now, not everyone on the centre-left is better off. But many of the people commentating on it are among the better off in society. And those people get, as a result of migration, affordable labour in the form of cleaners and nannies and the kind of diversity that makes for an interesting and lively society. And we like that. It also, the centre-left, it wants, instinctively wants to be compassionate towards people who are looking for a better life or fleeing war. So in that case, that plays into the case for, for migration. And you know, if when you look at the figures around migration, you know that migration doesn't generally lower wages, which you know, the right often claims it, it does. But there is a world of difference between the kind of theory and, the, and, and ordinary life. And this reminds me of something Anand Manon said when he talked about, uh, in the run-up to Brexit, when he was talking about GDP to leave voters. And somebody uh, in the audience he was talking to said, that's your GDP, not ours. It's a kind of, you know, GDP doesn't necessarily matter to people yeah. who don't, you know, who 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 aren't uh, thinking constantly about politics. And for people who don't hire other people and to whom diversity feels like potentially a worry rather than a boon, the benefits of immigration can be much harder to see. And if you're a politician... Maybe a parent who may well depend on migrants to look after your kids and clean your house so you can work, particularly the case for many women. Trying to stress those benefits can easily come across as top-down and elite and condescending. On the other hand, you don't want to dismiss people's concerns altogether because you don't want to be Gordon Brown in 2010 uh, complaining about that bigoted woman who brings up the subject of immigration. So it's just easier overall not to go there and not risk those attacks and not risk being torn apart by people on the right. And that is fundamentally, I think, why it can be so hard to talk about for yeah. the centre-left. And 
you know, it opens up a whole can of worms that is easier not to open. Do you also run that risk of, you know, the, the right coming at you, but then the further left coming at you as well? Because mm. it seems to me there's this, it's basically, you know, it's sort of you're either no borders or pro borders when it comes to this sort of thing. Mm. And if you try and get into any more nuance about it, people just yeah. can quite easily clamp down that you, you have to be put into a sort of a team of some Exactly. Kind. And it's the whole issue is so fraught and loaded that the centre-left worries and totally understandably worries about opening up space that the far right can exploit. You know, and you point to what's happening in the Netherlands and saying, well, don't, don't, don't let them drag you onto that territory, you know, because then they're dictating what you talk about. Let's talk about the other stuff that matters to people. Let's talk about health. Let's talk about education. That applies, interestingly, just as much to conservatives who might be economically pro-migration, but they worry about how much of it the public will tolerate and how much the right-wing media will choose to exploit the issue as well. So it's not just the left that has these has these issues, it's just that it hits slightly differently to with the, with the left. <laughs> Jerry, so what is Labour saying on migration at the moment? And you know, Keir Starmer will he'll at least have to get rid of the stop the boat slogan, but what can he actually replace that with? What can he fill the void with? It's interesting with Labour because as with so many policy positions at the moment, it doesn't actually differ that much from the Tories. Um, and I think we saw a little bit of that after the autumn, autumn statement last week. You know, Labour haven't said that they're going to roll back all these things. It's just a question of how they deal with them. And I think this is a similar similar issue. I mean, over the weekend, uh, you had them saying that essentially they're not going to put an arbitrary target on migration, that it's probably, you know, a couple of hundred thousand a year um, will be a normal level. But it's really important to note that that is kind of what the experts think is going to happen anyway. It's a little bit like that inflation promise that Rishi Sunak had, where he was like, I'm going to half inflation by the end of the year. And all the experts were like, uh, that's going to happen anyway. So not really much to do with you. But their whole plan is about speeding up the process of applications. They say they don't want to use hotels, but haven't ruled it out. They say they don't want to use the barge, but haven't ruled it out. And their whole thing is about speeding up those applications, getting them processed quicker so people aren't languishing in hotels. Now, of course, the problem and challenge for them is that that's going to cost a lot of money. And there isn't a lot of money about, especially after that autumn statement, where all those kind of tax cuts that we heard about are being funded by cuts to public spending that don't come until after the next election. So it's going to be a massive problem for Yvette Cooper and for Rachel Reeves. It's going to be the top issue on their desk. And it's difficult to see how you solve it without giving it more money. The massive question is going to be, where does that money come from? With that spending as well, I mean, to spend money around it too, do they have to... So Yvette Cooper in the past has said that she wants the governments to change the public's mind on immigration. Do you need to do that to kind of get a get a buy-in? But as you say, there's just so much of a mess, there's so much mechanical, you know, objective stuff to be done that then changing the way that people think about it. You know, how can you do both of those things at the same time? Can you do both of those things at the same time? No, I don't think you can do them both at the same time. I think you need to sort out the system to instill confidence in it until you can kind of win the public round. Because at the moment, you know, we heard from those um, polling stats there, people don't have confidence in the system. And that's regardless of where you are kind of ideologically on it or what your beliefs are. It's just the system's a mess and it doesn't work for anyone. So it's all about sorting out the system first, making sure people are confident with it. And then talking about kind of the benefits of migration and the positives and things like that. But I don't think until we get it sorted, they can really make any headway with that. Roz, as well, you know, we spoke about political ground that people don't want to go to. 
Is migration basically, in part, the number that it is due to Brexit? And because of that, Starmer might struggle to to say that because it drags him somewhere he doesn't want to be, which is talking about Brexit and why it's not done what people want it to do. Yeah, I mean, it's worth, it's worth saying that not all the migration rise is to do with Brexit. Ukraine and Hong Kong, not, not to do with Brexit, clearly. But it's certainly made our need for migrants greater because we're bumping along the bottom economically in a tight labour market, and yet inflation is still high. So Britons can't afford to take low-paying jobs, and that means that we need to attract migrants who will take them. And the other big reason is because, less discussed, is because universities need foreign students more than ever after losing their access to things like horizon funding and taking a hit when they became less attractive to other Europeans due to Brexit. And Starmer, you know, doesn't necessarily want to want to point out these things. I do think, though that he has some sympathy with the view that Brexit exposed how reliant we are on migrants in this country, because it means that we can't just look to Europe for people to fill these these difficult, badly paid jobs. It's actually getting harder and harder anyway, as the economies of Eastern Europe, who in Central Europe that were sending, uh, where, where people were, were coming to do uh, these less desirable jobs improved and more of them were staying. It was always going to get more difficult, but the problem is even more acute now. If it feels like we know what Keir Starmer thinks, why is it that you think that he then sometimes struggles to say it? Because we can guess it and people who don't like him will go, well, this is what he thinks anyway. So why why can't he just say it? I, just, I really don't understand it. If people who like him can guess that he's saying it and people who don't like him will accuse him of saying it anyway, just say it. For the reasons that I was just talking about, the centre-left has problems talking about immigration. <laughs> he is desperate not to come across. A dignity and respect is a key plank of the Labour programme. He is desperate not to alienate people who are pissed off about migration for one reason or another and to be seen, seen to belittle their concerns. That is electoral suicide for him, he knows. As I say, and in his sense, he's right because he doesn't just want people on the, you know, liberal remainers to be voting for him. He does need a group of voters who are from across society in order to get the kind of broad-based support that he needs at once in order to have a chance of actually changing Britain at all. For a long time, the Tories have been comfortable with this and Labour hasn't been comfortable with this. But in conclusion to this segment, I suppose, have we now hit a point where basically both parties, both of those two parties, neither one wants to talk about this issue, even though it's one that the Tories have constantly put in front of people and now they've eventually gone, actually, can we not talk about this either? I don't think either ever has talked about it properly. If the Conservatives want to talk about small boats when they think that it's, um, you know, potentially an election-winning issue, they don't want to talk about the fact that they've created an economy where we require large numbers of migrants, and they've had 13 years of creating those structural <laughs> conditions that, that that lead to that. They have no interest in talking about um, about that at all. What point do you have to venture onto this territory? and really start talking about it honestly. And uh, maybe that point is really coming now. And maybe it is time to almost be quite deliberate about talking about these difficult problems, however hard it will be for Starmer especially to do it and for the Conservatives to do it, because it means talking about the systemic problems in the British economy. Because otherwise, you're waiting until you have a Geert Wilders situation, you're waiting until the far right is really knocking at your door, and you're not getting to grips with, with the issue and talking about it intelligently.
Next up, it is time to choose our hero and villain of the week. So, Roz, who are your two? What have you got? Okay, well, this is slightly personal, but I had real—I always have real trouble coming up with a hero. Um, I always do. <laughs> but, you know, this, this week I, I saw my, because uh, I have MMS, and I saw my consultant on Friday, who I see, you know, luckily only about once a year at the moment. And he's a really good bloke and he does a fantastic job and he's really turned around the department that he works in in the NHS and I have so much time for him. And so he's my hero at the moment. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sorry, that's not very political. No, I'm glad, I'm glad it's, when it's, someone has a very personal one. It's better than when someone chooses a baddie and it's like Putin. No. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course he'll win villain every single week. But uh, I don't, I don't want to name him because I'm sure he doesn't listen to this podcast. He's got better things to do than listen to people talking about politics all day. But uh, yeah, uh, it's nice to find a corner of the NHS that he's uh, that works and that he's really had a big part in turning around that department. So that was a more wholesome moment than we usually have on Oh God What Now. So who's your villain? Who do you want to tell to fuck off right now? <laughs> Everyone who claimed that the autumn statement was in some way a tax cut. Yeah. <laughs> and even more, everyone who didn't acknowledge that it meant enormous you know, cuts to public services further down the line. Those are the people I'm most, most angry with at the moment. Jerry, hero. My hero is that crane driver in Reading that rescued okay. those people on the top of that burning building. I don't know if you've seen the video, but essentially he uh, yeah, is a crane operator and swung a, kind of a cage that people get into to transport them to things round to the top of this building where people were stuck and the footage is incredible. And someone has an amazing camera because they zoomed right in and you see them zoom out and the people are teeny tiny on the top yeah. of the building. Um, and he basically says that he was just in the right place at the right time. So he's my hero of the week. It was one of those videos when I saw it and people were saying this was happening in Reading. I was like, that's just too... It's too crazy a video. It must be an old video from somewhere else that's become fake news because it was just so weird to watch. Right, villain. Well, you just said that it can't be someone like Putin who is always a villain, but this, this person <laughs> is always a villain, but for a specific reason this week, and it's Tommy Robinson, um, okay. who I know could be a villain any given week, but he's uh, he was arrested and has been charged for basically turning up and being a wrong un, allegedly, at a march against anti-Semitism over the weekend. He was kind of warned repeatedly that uh, his presence there would kind of cause distress and um, he's accused of failing to comply with the direction to leave an area and he'll be in court in uh, January. But yes, organisers had said that he wouldn't be welcome at the event and uh, uh, yeah, basically he is my villain. He was sprayed with um, synthetic pepper spray and handcuffed over the weekend uh, when, when police arrested him and he uploaded a video of himself uh, with partially closed eyes to social media after being confronted. But um, less said about that, the better, I suppose. Poor, poor Tommy. It's almost like if you do something really inevitable that you're getting shit for, that then you get you getting shit for it. Who would have who would have known? Uh, right, it's going to be a one-one draw this week. So, <laughs> Roz, your consultant definitely wins the hero, uh, and Tommy Robinson, yeah, com completely fuck that guy. Uh, I, I once went to cover a Tommy Robinson rally and ended up with a crowd of people shouting scum and pointing down at my head because I got sent late by the news desk and I was wearing a suit and I might as well have been in like a journalist Halloween outfit and just got so much shit. So yeah, Tommy Robinson can be my uh, my villain anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Tories never seem to be out of campaign mode, with red meat policy pledges being their bread and butter these days. But apparently, from January, they'll take their eyes even further away from governing as they brace for a general election. Still, nobody knows when they'll head to the polls. But is there ever a good time to do that other than right now, of course, which is what we would want, when you look destined to lose? Roz, first things, would you suggest if you want to win over certain constituencies, it might be best not to call or at least not be accused of calling them shitholes? Well, you know, that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? <laughs> I should point out that, yeah, James Cleverly does deny this. He says he was referring to the MP rather yeah. than the constituency. But to be honest, you know, it's not nice to be rude about MPs either. No. That's that's not in the tradition of the House of Commons and my, you know, honourable friend, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, I mean, I've heard a lot of people use shithole as an insult at a person as well, definitely. So I'm, I completely fathom that that could be what it was. But hey, you know, maybe some people are more cynical than I am there. <laughs> but, you know... With this as well, with, I mean, yeah, the shitholes debate has really made us all, I think, feel like, you know, do you remember Brenda from Bristol who did the, you know, not another one? Do we now all feel like the complete opposite of that? It even feels like some Tories just feel the complete opposite of that. It's like, please, can we just do this now? It's all becoming embarrassing and we'd just like this to happen. Yeah, it feels like we're in limbo at the moment. And, uh, you know, the, the feeling is, you know... Very probably Labour will win next year and people are trying to make plans based on that assumption, but they can't be absolutely sure. And so that is actually holding up quite a lot of investment and quite a lot of business decisions. And we need, you know, some kind of certainty. We've been paralysed on fighting about things like housing and migration and net zero where it's been back and forth. And we need some kind of direction. And it's been 13 years. You know, very few parties can maintain support beyond 13 years. And they're certainly not in a cost of living crisis. I suppose it's twofold uncertainty as well, isn't it? That we don't, you know, we don't 100% know that Labour are going to get in. But mm. then we also don't know remotely what the, the playing field will, field will be like when they do get in, if they do get in. So it's kind of a, a double like a spiral of just uncertainty, isn't it? Yeah, no one can see how they can afford what they really want to do. It's yeah. it fundamentally <laughs> comes down to it. It's probably going to be the story of the next year. Jerry, so January is apparently when they're being tipped as needing to be ready for them. You know, they've got some campaign chief who's in number 10 moving to CCHQ from January. Does that actually indicate that this could be any sooner or are we all... All us chattering classes, media elites, just thinking a little bit too hard about this because basically, you know, January will be a year until they have to do an election. So you'd hope within a year they're probably getting a little bit ready, aren't they? I think there's a bit of that. I think that there is, you know, the fact that they probably want to be ready at any given point in that year, essentially. That's why you want to be ready for January because if May feels like the right time, they might want to go in May. If October feels the right time, they'll want to go in October. But those are kind of the two kind of months that we're that we're looking at. But, you know, there are a lot of indications that show you people are getting ready for this. I mean, there was a story in The Times just today about how Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, before he went off sick, was suggesting to Rishi Sunak that really he has to start allowing the civil service to talk to Labour about what might happen and those kind of talks to get them ready. Um, that's a bit of an indicator that we should we could see some soon. Some people saw the autumn statement as an indicator, but I think it's all still up in the air. It's very fun, and I do it all the time, to guess about it. But I think there is a very, very small number of people around Rishi Sunak that actually know his thinking on this. You can count them on one hand. And do you know what? This number 10, to their credit, has shown that they're quite good at keeping things 
tight-lipped yeah. um, compared to previous uh, previous administrations anyway. So who knows? I mean, a, a year just isn't very long. I saw in that reporting that apparently Rishi Sunak said to Simon Case no because then people will think that an election is coming up. Yeah. An election is coming up, though, yeah. in, in, in a year, which isn't a hugely long time. I don't know if maybe I'm just being overly logical there, but... Yeah, let them let them talk to the civil service, I'd say. The New European quoted NSYNC with it's going to be May in a bit of their reporting on it. What would the benefits of going in May be? There are some benefits. You roll it in with the local elections, um, which means that, you know, if the Tories saw wipeout in council seats, they wouldn't have to then deal with that embarrassment in the run-up to a general election campaign. Okay. Um, you can almost you can guarantee... You pull the plaster off on both right, <laughs> at the exactly, same time. Totally. And you can, you, know, you can see it now that obviously Labour and the Lib Dems are going to make hay if they lose a load of seats in May and then have to try and fight a general election. And it's a balancing act, right? Things could get worse. As you yeah. go into the autumn, winter, NHS pressures get worse. Maybe the economy doesn't recover as quickly as they might like. And it is a gamble of whether... Basically, how bad can it get? On that, though, I mean, they've done so badly at any by-election that has been done. What makes them think in any way, shape or form? So Professor Michael Frasher suggested that the May elections could swing when they go to the polls. I mean, do they actually, does anyone within the Conservative Party think that they could be better than they're hoping for and encourage them to, to hold on a little bit longer? I think what they are hoping for maybe is that people feel better off. Like, no one's going to feel as financially secure as they did, you know, pre-disastrous uh, Liz Trust mini-budget, for example. But are they going to feel better off than they do now? Potentially, if we see more um, tax cuts, sorry, Ross, uh, in the um, spring budget, <laughs> um, then, uh, you know, people may feel a bit better off by October. I bumped into a former cabinet minister in the corridors at Parliament the other day, and I said, oh, how do you think that statement went and he said well you know I think people will feel better off with 50 quid more a month in their pockets and I kind of raised an eyebrow and said is that enough though and he kind of raised an eyebrow back and went well we'll see so look it's not it's not that they think people are going to feel drastically better off be able to have the same living standards as before but by going long the hope for them is that it recovers enough. Obviously we spoke a lot about immigration in the first half does the statement make it feel like they've gone, right, we can't run on immigration anymore because no one trusts us on it and the numbers aren't going the way we want. So fuck it, let's try and run on the economy because that's another place where we know, you know, Greg Hans can post a letter about Labour saying there was no money left. That's another place where they feel naturally comfortable and they've shifted to that that way. Yeah, I think so. And I think that the next election is going to be both of those things, right? Um, good on us for predicting what is going to be the battle lines for the Conservatives. It's going to be immigration. It's going to be the economy. You know, Conservative MPs say to me that they want to fight that election on immigration, some of them. Others say it's got to be the economy because if people don't feel better off, if they still feel like the cost of living is absolutely hammering them, they've seen their shop go up and their bills go up, then they're still going to kind of feel bad about the government. And actually, my opinion on this, and some Conservative MPs as well, feel like it's gone too far. It's it's too far gone. Like, even if people feel better off, people are done. They're ready for it to change. So I think there is some of that. But yeah, I think immigration and the economy, based on who you speak to, are going to be the two big issues. Ros, given how many bad things have happened lately, should the Tories actually just be more worried that something completely random and out of their control could happen to make things worse? I mean, there's this new, or this swine flu that we've seen or something like that. Why? I mean, everybody touch wood, if you're listening to the podcast, touch wood. But should they not 
care more about the fact that there will be not only planned events and things going wrong already, but unforeseen circumstances which could make everything worse for them too. Yeah, not now, pig flu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they shouldn't. And I'll tell you why. Because um, when people are afraid and during a crisis, they tend to go with what they know. And they tend to stick with the party that they know. You know, look at the polling bounce that the Tories had during the early days of COVID. Obviously not later, but during the early days, there's an instinct to stick with what you know and a reluctance to take risks. So actually, if you were being incredibly cynical about it, I think the Tories could actually benefit from something truly disastrous happening. So yeah, yeah. that's my that's my perhaps unexpected <laughs> answer. Well, I mean, on that on that timing, so I'm going to skip slightly ahead to a to a question, and we'll we'll roll back. But on that, you know, when they should have rolled the dice, if they mm. just wanted to extend their time in power, should they have done that then during? COVID at some point and gone, should we have, I mean, obviously it would have been really strange to run an election during that, but actually mm. in terms of timing, you know, people were going out and clapping for Boris at yeah. a point, which you can't, it's quite hard to imagine now. Obviously it's a very strange time in the world, but should they have just... Wouldn't have worked because basically uh, Johnson was at his most popular at a time when it was impossible to hold an election. You know, there were no, every, you know, the elections yeah. were postponed in May uh, 2020. And uh, so it wasn't physically possible to run an election there. By the time it became possible... We were starting to hear about Partygate, and you know we were st and and uh, Johnson's approval ratings had plummeted. Then they would have lost that election, not by as much as they'll lose it next year, probably, but they would have lost it. Jerry, last week you wrote about the One Nation group of Tories who've warned that leaning too far right puts off voters. And in response, Andrea Jenkins, uh, of that famous uh, middle finger photo, said that they should sod off to the Lib Dems. I mean, might they? And we've seen. Plenty of politicians sod off to the Lib Dems, sometimes via Change UK uh, points. But, you know, would that, uh, would that happen? I think judging on how that went for those who sodded off to Change UK, probably not. Look, I think, I think there are some who maybe have an eye on the Lib Dems looking at how well they've done in recent by-elections and think maybe if I was a Lib Dem, I'd have a better shot. But I think that is probably quite misinformed because, you know, it's all very well. The Lib Dems are brilliant at this. Shoveling resources into one single by-election doesn't work so well at a general election. As far as we know, they've got their eye on about 80 seats. Their resources are going to be spread much more thinly. So for any Conservatives thinking, I might be better off than the Lib Dems, probably not in the kind of seats that we're talking about. Um, but that doesn't mean that all is well and happy families in the Conservative Party, you know, judging by... That, that response by Andrea Jenkins, by the fact that the One Nation group felt like they needed to come out and say that putting uh, people are put off by leaning too much to the right. I think we're going to see more and more of this in the run up to the election where the different tribes are fighting and tearing chunks out of each other um, because that's what happens in the dying days of a government. So, Ros, Gordon Brown you know, bottled it in 2007 quite famously. You said that the Tories couldn't go for their best time to go, but have they also missed their least worst time to go? No, I, I don't think it's like it's a it's a very interesting um, comparison, really. Um, I think um, uh, Gordon Brown could actually have won that election in early, early two thousand and eight, and it was the fact that he, as, as we say, bottled it and decided not to that then sealed the deal with the electorate, who decided that he was not, you know, the the kind of um, brave, determined prime minister that they wanted to see. Um, back then, it was before the financial crisis. David Cameron was still quite a new leader. He was not yet bedded in. And then just as it, there, there were rumours that Gordon Brown might call an election, Osborne, George Osborne, promised to raise, uh, promised to cut inheritance tax. 
And he promised to cap immigration. Does this feel familiar yet? Yeah. And cut stamp duty. <laughs> yeah, all the old hits. And uh, the, suddenly the, the people quite liked the sound of that because back then that kind of thing worked because we were living in a very different economy yeah. and there wasn't the sense that the country was fundamentally broken and facing very, very severe problems. And so the polls moved on stuff like that back then. So it's not, yeah, I, I can't I can't think of a time, you know, certainly post the beginning of COVID. And of course, that came so soon after Johnson came to power in 2019, uh, that they really could have been sure of, of winning it. Are they also perhaps feeling chastened by Theresa May's gung-ho approach where she just went for it and then completely slashed their majority? So there's this, you don't want to go wait too long, but you also don't want to go too quickly. Yeah, I mean, Theresa May was a very different personality and she wanted a personal mandate. See, she came to uh, power after after Cameron resigned, after Brexit. She never really felt that she had the full support of the country or indeed the party. I'm not sure Rishi Sunak has those same uncertainties. I think he believes he is the best leader that Britain could currently yeah. have. So there isn't really that going on. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Theresa May, going back to the point we made earlier, reminds me that she's very much the, that she's more right wing than you think, but she's on the right wing of people who but still care about processes and respect. It all. Yeah, exactly. She's so a, she's, a, you know, much more traditional conservative in, in that way. Of course, she suffered from that mood that voters sometimes get into when they realise that a, a leader, uh, a party is trying to secure another five years while they think they still can and immediately think, right, you're not going to take us for granted. We're going to give you a bit of a kicking just to show you that we are not, you're not necessarily going to get another five years and it's not going to be that easy. And I think that dynamic was, was uh, very much present when uh, in 2017. Finally, uh, a quick fire one for both of you then. So, Jerry, when do you actually want there to be an election? Uh, very briefly, I'd prefer one in May just because I'm sick of writing about the same thing over and over again and I'd quite like to go on a battle bus. Uh, but um, on the other hand, I'd quite like one in October because I've got a bet with a mate for that I've put 20 quid down on and I don't want to lose my money. So, <laughs> <laughs> Rose, what about you? Well, practically speaking, I mean, I want one tomorrow, but you know, um, I think March would be best. That is because I don't like to muddle my elections. Unlike politicians, um, I like people to have a sense of what they're actually voting for when they go to the polls and the differences between them and so I kind of instinctively don't like it when you mix up local elections and general elections. I realise that's probably a losing, <laughs> a losing hope and people are going to do it anyway. But I like the two to be separate. Uh, March is not so deep in winter that uh, people are going to be you know, hopefully reluctant to come out to vote. And canvassing is going to be really unpleasant. And the nights are getting lighter, which also plays into all that when you're, when you're canvassing. So, yeah, March is the first practical time, I think think when you could have an election and so I say March. Yeah, March is the closest to now so on that I'm going to treat this like heroes and villains and I'm going March Ross, you, you win on which we want. We've reached the end of the show so it is time for Escape Routes. Ros, what have you been you know, watching, doing, reading away from politics in the last week? I've read a really good novel. It's a uh, uh, thriller. It's called Cahokia Jazz by Francis Spufford, who's a really great writer. He's written a lot of books and they're all very, very different. But Cahokia Jazz is, is set in the 1920s in America in a in the fictional city of Cahokia, which is uh, in this kind of parallel universe where some things, you know, are the same, and, but, but, uh, but Native Americans 
won certain key battles during the Civil War and therefore enjoy certain rights and, you know, our distinct ethnic identity in the US. And so it's a very, it, it, it's an alternative, it's an alternative history, if you like, and it makes it quite fascinating. And because it's Francis Spufford, or it's a really good read and really pacey, it's also about religion, because okay. he's fascinated by that as well. He's actually married to a priest himself. So to a vicar, I think, or perhaps someone more senior than a vicar, but that doesn't matter. Anyway, um, so it's it's a great read. I highly recommend it. I'm actually ordained in the United States, and that's something we can talk about on a, another time. Of course you are. Did you get that done in Las Vegas? No, I just got it done online. The, my <laughs> friend said in a group chat that I couldn't do it, and I just went, I can. And then I've went on the internet, and now I can do funerals in uh, in certain states of America, even or weddings, even once I'm trying to. Anyone who wants to go to America and be be married... I'll do it. Uh, Jerry, what are, what are your escape routes? <laughs> uh, this probably reveals quite a lot about my kind of uh, type A personality. Um, but I am going away with a lot of friends next week for our pre-Christmas Christmas. We all did student journalism together about 10 years ago. Nice. And lots of us are still uh, journalists. So we're uh, renting an Airbnb in Norfolk. But I have been organising it all. So I've been designing the menu and uh, <laughs> as I can say so there's a lot about my personality that I'm the one kind of with the Britney mic I think that if I hadn't been a journalist I maybe would have gone into some kind of events planning situation because I've been enjoying it all far too much yeah when me and my friends do that sort of thing away it's like I'm definitely the person who just goes and buys loads of frozen pizzas and garlic breads and just hopes that no one notices that I haven't cooked or prepared anything whatsoever. I am the travel agent, the uh, debt collector, the menu designer, um, and they all roll their eyes at me and tell me that I'm doing organised fun, but they all turn up and enjoy it anyway. So. Nice. Well, mine is going to be hanging out with dogs. I was dog-sitting my girlfriend's parents' dogs. And uh, yeah, so it's a uh, was a big boxer and a Dalmatian, who just really cute. The Dalmatian will just let you completely hug it to pieces and doesn't get annoyed at it. Whereas my girlfriend has a, a little Lakeland Terrier, which if you touch her anywhere that she doesn't like, will, will snap at you. She's got great personality. Uh, and then the boxer, who is just like a sort of big bundle of drool but in a nice way and yeah so I was just taking them on loads of walks and so yeah if you get to hang out with a dog do that That'd be so my much my idea of hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I mean the, bo the boxer kind of at points it's like oh mate please just get your mouth away from me it's done my head in but then She's just got this really sad face that looks up at you and you're just like, oh, you know what? Not if she looks up at me. If it makes you, ha if it makes you happy. <laughs> She's just so strong, you can barely resist it, really. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God What Now. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. And thank you, as ever, Roz. Thank you. Oh God What Now will be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. And don't forget podmarket.co.uk for all your Christmas present needs. Thank you for listening to Oh God What Now. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis with Ross Taylor and Jerry Scott. The group editor was Andrew Harrison and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin and Mike Bollin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production.